everyone. This is the Mainspring Family Wellness Podcast. I am Kristen Perlmutter. And I'm Jenna Flowers. And we're so glad you're tuning in today because this episode is going to be an incredibly powerful one. Yes. We have with us today Jaina Woodbury. And I was first introduced to Jaina through a mutual friend, a wonderful mutual friend. And I learned of her personal firsthand journey from addiction to recovery and really just wanted to have her on our podcast to speak about what she has been through. Yeah, I actually watched her um, her episode on Sesame Street with her daughter, mm-hmm. and it was so powerful. And it's it's really not just even her journey. It's actually a recovery story for her and her husband while raising um, their daughter. Yeah, it's really incredible. Um, I know we're going to talk about this a little bit on the podcast, but even just that people can stay together during that time, like what a challenge that must be. Yeah, and for also how young they were when yes. they got together. Yeah, um, and to go on to have stay married and have more children. It's really incredible. But her story is really one that radiates honesty and positivity, and I feel like everyone needs to hear her journey and not only applaud the strength that um, in her, you know, that is required for her success, but also just it makes you think about people in your own life or, or maybe even trigger something in, within yourself, um, you know, some acknowledgement of some things that maybe you need might need to work on or someone that you know that might be going through a, a difficult time with addiction. Yes, I think it's it's not just even her personal strength, but it's also the strength of her husband, her whole family that really came around them, mm-hmm. um, which we're going to hear more about. Um, it really truly is a, a group effort. Yeah. And it's a it's a beautiful story of um, of wellness and healing, and that's really what what we're all about at Mainspring Family Wellness, helping people heal. So let's get started. Okay. This is Mainspring Family Wellness, where transformation takes root. This podcast is for parents pursuing both personal growth and family wellness. We will cover relevant topics that help us reflect make educated choices, and parent effectively. My name is Kristen Perlmutter. I'm an educator, a philanthropist, and a mother of three who is passionate about personal growth and seeing families at their optimal wellness. And I'm Dr. Jenna Flowers, a marriage and family therapist, author of The Conscious Parent's Guide to Co-Parenting, speaker, and mother of three. Well, we are so excited today to have on our podcast, Jaina Woodbury. And Jaina can be noted for her philanthropy and advocacy work and raising awareness towards addiction and mental health issues. And specifically, Jaina was also a part of an effort to shed light on family systems in addiction. Her family was featured on Sesame Street's Parental Addiction series, which received a Daytime Emmy for Best Short Film. And Jaina has also been featured in publications for sharing her knowledge and work in the treatment industry. And today she now serves as a community outreach for the District Recovery, an outpatient program in Huntington Beach, and is uh, Director of Communications for the Red Songbird Foundation. She's also a junior board member for Shatterproof and sits as board vice president for CASA, which is the California Alliance for State Advocacy. And for enjoyment, Jaina loves spending time with her family, reading, hiking, and going to church. Hi, Jaina. Hey, thanks for having me. Such I'm so a, happy you're here. Such an course. impressive bio there. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Can you start us off by sharing with us a little more about uh, your experience with addiction? 
What were you addicted to and what what did your life look like during that time? So my sobriety date is January 12th, 2012, um, which puts me at a little over 10 years of sobriety. Congratulations. A decade, which is a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, and my addiction was to opiates. Um, and it didn't start, always start that way. Of course, you know, in high school, I, I dabbled, but it you learn that addiction is progressive. And for me, just as life continued to happen, it just... I just graduated into more harder drugs. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I believe what triggered that ultimately was just untreated anxiety, mm-hmm. untreated depression, becoming a young mother, and just, and then of course, not having a strong family system for myself as well. Um, and so, but again, you know, growing up, we don't always have the language to, to put to dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And so it just, was a progressive deal for me. So finally, January 12, 2012, I surrendered, not willingly at all. I had an intervention, actually, um, and I've stayed sober since. It's really incredible. Mm, thank you. So how, how did the drugs come into your life? So because my family system was broken, my dad was an alcoholic, but he was very successful. And so it was kind of one of those things where it wasn't talked about, kind of, you know, push it under the rug. Um, on the outside, we presented, you know, as a family, I have three brothers. And so he was my soccer coach. I was active, you know, in sports. And um, just through time, I found friends being my family, mm-hmm. the, the people that I would go to because I didn't have, um, again, like the language to put to the dysfunction. I just knew that my home wasn't somewhere I wanted to be. Mm. So I would go out a lot, and I was always saying, oh, my friends are my family. Mm. And, and I found pride in that, enjoying that. I felt a connection in that. And, but now in my adult life, I know it's a false sense of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a way um, to not have to deal with what was going on in the home. And so being out of the home a lot, I just gravitated towards people who were also outside of the home and and didn't really have that home structure Mm -hmm. or open communication and accountability. And so I was off and running. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you had um, an addiction to opiates Mm -hmm. and then you got married Mm -hmm. and the addiction continued Mm -hmm. and then you had children. Yes. How did that play out? So it's kind of interesting because I got married at 20, right? We look for what we don't have, but we also recreate the family system we were in. Mm-hmm. And so I got married young, and I th- I knew I wasn't on the best track, but at that point, I thought that getting married would fix it. Mm-hmm. And so I actually married, um, who I'm still married to, a man named Sam, and we met in the seventh grade. <laughs> And so he was just kind of like my best friend in high school. Um, Although I was kind of veering off, I still excelled in school. Straight-A student. I graduated high school early. Uh, It was just two very different lives, I guess you could say. Um, And so him and I, so I went off to college actually early again in Kentucky, Murray State, which oddly is a dry county. (laughs) <laughs> and I got a DUI in that county. Oh, wow. <laughs> but they knew I was from out of state, and they are like, it was kind of like a slap on the wrist. They were like, okay, you just need to go home. 
And so I did. And when I went back home to St. Louis, where I spent most of my childhood, um, I ran into old people, places, and things again. And Sam was one of those people. And so, you know, having had French a friendship in high school, we naturally did some of the same things. And so he was already into, or still into, I guess you could say, um, just things that weren't healthy, you know, mm-hmm. drug use, mm-hmm. um, no school, mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, flying by the seat of his pants, trying to make it work. Um, and so we ran into each other. And we're like, we're going to get married. And you were 20. I, I had just turned 20 January 5th, and okay. we got married March 22nd. Wow. Nice. Very quick. <laughs> so you guys have been married for a long time. Yeah, we're coming up on our 14 wedding um, wow. year anniversary. Wow. Um, and you guys have been through a lot together. A lot. And now we've been s- together sober longer than using. That's great. Which is just a testament to the miracles and the things that can happen whenever you get proper treatment, mm-hmm. you seek proper therapy and guidance. Did you get sober at the same time? Yes. Wow. So it was a family intervention for you both. It was a family intervention for us both. So how were the kids being impacted during that time when you guys were in your... Um, using. Yeah, when you were using. So when we got married, he was in the Marine Corps at that point. Again, right? Like, oh, I'll get this job and it'll fix it. Mm-hmm. So he was in the Marine Corps. He got stationed in Okinawa, Japan. I went to visit for two weeks and stayed for two and a half years. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I got pregnant within like three weeks. So and, and how it impacts her, you know, kind of understanding the timeline of just like my addiction. So what actually exacerbated my addiction was my C-section. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because you were recovering from the C-section. I was recovering from the C-section, so I was prescribed pain pills. Mm-hmm. And again, I had had some time clean without really knowing it. Because I was like, he has the job. I was kind of white-knuckling it. That's what we Mm -hmm. call it. And so when I was prescribed the opiates, it just triggered something. I didn't have family, you know, around me um, when I had the baby. And so it was just very isolating. Mm -hmm. So, And I did have postpartum depression, and I just self-medicated. And from there, and I was prescribed it consistently from doctors. Wow. Yeah. For years. So she was, so Celia was two at the time actually that I got sober and that was the ultimatum you know the the intervention they all, were all in the circle of course <laughs> with their letters and Celia was on my in-law's lap and they said if you don't go get help then we're taking her so how did they know there was a problem so we were in Japan he got his orders changed to North Carolina and we were there probably about a year And this is when I was still on opiates because you know that once you've been consistently doing opiates, you become physically addicted. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really know that there was a withdrawal. I just knew that, like, if I didn't take pills that I just felt horrible. I just wasn't able to function. So we came back to the States, to North Carolina. I was basically doctor shopping for a whole year. Um, And then my husband uh, popped on a urinalysis. Mm-hmm. And so we actually got out of the Marine Corps, not bad conduct, but just they were just like, we can't do this. So we lost our health benefits. So mm-hmm. that's when I went from pain pills to the street drug, which is heroin. Oh, wow. okay. Yeah. Okay. So it was, for me, absolutely progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
North Carolina, going back to St. Louis, we moved in with his parents because we were kind of in transition. So again, at this point, I didn't have my health insurance. So we started doing heroin. And I went from popping pills to shooting heroin in four months. Um, and we were in their home doing this. And that's how that's how they, they discovered they discovered it. And Celia was a baby, too. Wow. So tell us about that road to recovery. So we had the intervention. How, I mean, did you go willingly? Did you put up a fight? I put up a fight. I'm a fighter. <laughs> My husband was like, oh, I'm ready to go. Well, heroin is one of the most difficult drugs yeah. to recover from. Yeah. When you're in it. I mean, the, even the way it impacts your brain, right? You're in fight or flight. You literally think that you need this. It's like food. It's like sleep. That's how you go after it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the frontal lobe right here, right? It's like that's where the judgment is. That's where hopefully you have you can create a space between the thought and the action. And I just didn't have that. Right. And um, so it was. it was really hard. You know, I was not... A line. I didn't wasn't in reality. Was mm-hmm. very had a very false sense of reality, and all that mattered was staying high and staying well. At some point in a lot of people's addiction, it goes from fun to having to maintain mm-hmm. with yeah. it. Yeah, and it's no longer fun. That's when I you're using and no one knows. Right. Mm-hmm. That's when you're lying. Yeah. This reminds me like I had a kid years back that ended up getting addicted to heroin and um, he was homeless. He was on the streets. And then he called his mom and he goes, um, I'm going to die doing this. This is I, he's like he could not live without it. Wow. And that's how I felt. Like, yeah. Even just in the detox process, because I would try so hard. And, and that's the saddest point is when I remember I'll never forget. And it's a little graphic, but, like, just crying but still having to shoot. Like, I didn't want to, but, mm-hmm. like, I just couldn't. I just couldn't function mm-hmm. without it. I'd be so sick. And so Celia, she was – of course, children are smart. Children are also very resilient. But she was sensing that there was disruption and something going on. And it even came to the point towards the end there where if I had like $50, I would like make sure I could buy cigarettes, buy her something to eat, and then the rest I would just go buy drugs. And that's just for one day, right? Mm -hmm. The next day I would have to wake up and do the same thing, figure out how to go get money. And I found purpose in that. I'm codependent. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of like the underlying issue before the alcoholism came, and it came from you know the dysfunction in the home and what I was exposed to, um, and so I just found purpose in that. I'm like, oh, I got you, I got us, I can figure it out. And so, towards the end there, I mean, she was going with us on runs, you know, trying to, and and I, we were getting sloppy towards the end and would do it in front of her, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which people look at me now and they're like, you what? You did what? But I always share that. I was actually shameful sharing that for the first few years. But I found that there's so much power in just getting raw and vulnerable because that breeds rawness and vulnerability for other people. It becomes a safer space. Right. And so that's been my entire mission since then. It's like, you know what? This is who I am. This is what it is. And if you want to seek help, I can help. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. You had to own your truth about that. Exactly. 
Hi, Mainspring listeners. Did you know that about 10% of adults in the United States will have a drug use disorder at some point in their lives? Addiction treatment is essential if you or a loved one finds you're struggling with addiction. We wanted to take the time to share about a program called the District Recovery Community. They offer a partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient program, as well as sober living environments. Therapeutically, they approach their patients with research-based therapeutic treatments. And what I appreciate about this program as a therapist is that they are in network with many insurance companies, which means the district is an accredited recovery program. Something that the district has that I haven't seen at other recovery programs is their approach to building community, which includes offering surfing, softball, paintball, and other healthy activities where you can learn how to have fun again without drugs and alcohol. The district recovery community is located right here in Orange County, and their primary purpose is to equip young adults with essential recovery and life-based skills that will help them go on to lead a happy, healthy, and sober lifestyle. Their clinical team is passionate about providing evidence-based care in a safe and welcoming environment, and they strive to create an authentic community that supports and encourages long-term recovery. If you need this resource or you know someone who does, check out www.thedistrictrecovery.com. So how long were you in treatment or in rehab? So I was presented with treatment, and I was like, I'm doing 30 days, that's it, which a lot of people say. Well, it takes a lot longer than 30 days, and I didn't know that. And they sent me to a wilderness program that Mm. was actually 60 days residential, and so when I and the, me and my husband actually went to the same program. We okay. were their first and only married couple. Wow. Which you you know like statistically yeah. the odds are yeah. so against us on every level. Yeah. You said first and only. So they've not taken other couples well, or they've since rebranded and and shut down because mm. this was a little over 10 years ago or got bought out, I guess you could say. Um but yeah, we were it was called Four Circles, and mm. it was in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Incredible program. Mm. So they take you, is, is it just a lot of just kind of raw nature kind of? Yeah, so there's like a level system, and it was, you know, acceptance, surrender, but each of the assignments were also associated with a skill. So mm-hmm. I had to learn how to make a figure four trap. I had to learn how to make a oh. Paiute trap. I had to make a bow and learn how to bow drill and create fire using my hands, sparking um, a spark and like a tinder bundle, like what you see like in the yeah. wilderness. So for me, it's impressive. Impressive, right? Yeah. They're like, well, if <laughs> add that to your resume. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. But they, um, they were like, you know, if you're going to keep doing this, we're at least going to send you somewhere where you can learn how to survive. Yeah. If, mm-hmm. if this is the road you're taking. And so... It was actually interesting because to graduate, I, I had to go on a vision quest and sit mm-hmm. in solitude on a mountain for four days and four nights by myself. Wow. And they basically tied off string and they're like, okay, you stay in this parameter. You get a certain amount of food. If you want to make fire, you better make sure you have tinder bundles. <laughs> if you want hot coffee, you need the fire. Yeah. And so I, I did that. Um, so I was at that program for 60 days away from Celia while my in-laws kept her. And then I came to California, actually, to New Directions for Women because that's where you can have your baby with you. Yeah, such a great well. program. It saved my life, honestly. It's As women, a lot of times we're the last ones to go get help mm-hmm. because we're the caretaker. And it's it's just so much harder 
sometimes to to leave a child. A, who they don't people don't always have family support, and and B, it's like you can't go to treatment with your child. Mm-hmm. So when I was at Four Circles and I was looking at options, I was like, why are there so few options? And mm-hmm. my therapist, I'll never forget, was like, usually by the time they're sitting in your seat, they've lost their child. Mm-hmm. And it just hit me. You know, and so I re- you reunited with Celia at the airport and her face, like even the elevator started closing and I was in it and she was like still coming in with um, her grandma and it was just fear of like are you leaving mm-hmm. where are you going and so th- my shame actually saved me in a sense because mm-hmm. I was my ego too I was like there is no way that I'm going to be living in this treatment center with my daughter right next to me and I'm gonna leave there were women there that would AMA which is leaving against medical advice and leave their child while they yeah. would go get high Wow. And it gives me the chills just thinking about it. But so my ego and my shame literally saved me because there's I just there's I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So I, I stayed there for six months. So total eight months of the full continuum, residential, PHP, IOP, stepping out properly, you know, bringing those natural stressors into that controlled environment while still being mindful of the fact that, OK, you're a wife, mm-hmm. you're a mother, but you're still this person that needs to heal. Mm-hmm. And so I had to find the balance of that. And it takes time. I think a lot of courage. You're so brave. Thank you. I just think that's so powerful, too, to learn how to be in recovery and be in this program and then parent at the same time. It's difficult. Because parenting is stressful and, and we're sober. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So to be working that program and really, like, transforming your life and then you've got a toddler – that you're yeah. also in the program with. I and mean, then I got pregnant at 90 Days Sober. Oh, did you oh, really? Wow. I did. Wow. Okay. And I was in school. So I started going to school at like 70 days, which was actually pretty incredible. Yeah. What prompted me. you to do that? Honestly, I don't even, I have no idea. That's part of like transitioning out. Now that I'm a case, like a, like a licensed KDAC, it's... Okay, now that you're stepping down, what are you going to put in place to supplement that time? You're going to go mm-hmm. to work, you're going to go to mm-hmm. school, or you're going to volunteer. And I was like, well, I'm going to go to school. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to work. Good choice. And I'm not going to volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to school and I just started with one class. And it's interesting, still 4.0 student in rehab. And no one knew I was in rehab. And that was so refreshing for me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, these people have no idea that literally when I go home tonight, I have to breathalyze. I'm going to have to take off my shoes and they're mm-hmm. going to search me. Yeah. Wow. That was my reality. Talk to us about your, you know, Celia's experience. I mean, what she was young. So mm-hmm. what was she aware of? What kind of conversations did you have with her around this? So she actually turned three in rehab with me. And... Now, and that's kind of like where the Sesame Street deal Mm -hmm. comes into play. So when I was in rehab, I was like, we're going to do gratitude lists. What are you grateful for? Highs? What are your lows? You know, I was literally the same thing that I was doing. I was doing with her as a parent. I would teach her how to meditate and imagery. That was what we always did. I'm like, okay, close your eyes. Imagine you're on a beach. And I just like really encouraged her creativity and just... Her child, like, you know, just she was still a child. And I just, again, went so hard after. It was almost I was, like, recovering with her. Mm -hmm. And in the program, 
there's a process to where you get to make an amends. And to her, my amends is a living amends because she was so young at mm-hmm. that point. And so there's not anything I could really say. I could just do and show up. And so that's to this day, it's still my living amends. To her is just to be available always and transparent and just let her know, hey, if I'm struggling, it's okay that mommy struggles, you know, because it's okay if you struggle. Mm-hmm. That's just the household that we have now. Mm-hmm. And so if you see her now, she's an incredible child, so emotionally intelligent. The things that she has, like, said as a child. I've had teachers come to me. You know, there was a point. She was only in third grade. And someone had made fun of another kid. And she went up there and she was like, you never know what someone is going through. You, you don't want to do that. That's not kind. And the teacher, like, overheard it and was just like, I would just want, if that were my child, I would want to know that they did that. <laughs> and she's still constantly, like, even now, just that light in her friend group, always. She's always the one that people can go to because she's like that safety. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, done a good job. Thank you. It's been hard. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. So, And so your husband during this time was not with you, obviously, at New Directions, and he was getting his own treatment. Yes. And you, and you both have stayed on that same path. And I believe we stayed on the path because we stayed separate for eight months. Right. I was told, okay, it's going to be a little different for you because you are married and you have a child. Don't make any decision for a year. You don't leave for a year. Right? Like you just, you guys, he works on himself. You work on yourself. Yeah. And you co-parent. And that's what we did. And then we finally reunited. We actually got separated in sobriety at about seven years, the seven-year itch. I think mm-hmm. that's like a real thing. <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but that also was huge because even though you get sober, there's still emotional sobriety. And I started becoming more aware of my codependency and trauma, mm-hmm. frozen trauma. Mm-hmm. At that point. So I was still, although we weren't using, I still had no sense of self. I was doing and being how I thought I should be, just accommodating everything. And so he, and it actually pushed him away and led him astray from, you know, showing up as like the father, the husband. I'm like, oh, you want to go hang out with your friends? Go. Because I did fear of rejection. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want, or abandonment. I just... I'm like, whatever you want to do, go. And so he he went. He just, he went. He wasn't doing anything bad, but he was, I kind of say it now, but like alcoholically working his program, mm-hmm. you know, to where he was just being there. He was also being there for everyone else. And so he wasn't, when he would come home, he was empty. He had nothing mm-hmm. to give. And it actually, we were separated for a little while. It's understandable. It was actually Celia that looked at us one day and said, can we try to be a family again? Oh. Well, seriously, and we tried, and here we are four kids later, like the best we've ever been. Our family is so close. That's amazing. She sounds like a little old soul. She is. She's incredible. What do you see as some of the um, challenges now in staying sober? Is it hard or? No, it's such a foreign, what feels, you easily forget sometimes. Now the the main thing is I'm a perfectionist. I have high functioning anxiety. 
I work in the behavioral health field. And so burnout, compassion fatigue, balance, not picking up the distressed mom's phone call at 8 p.m. because I'm putting my kids to bed, that is my biggest struggle. And that's actually something only recently that I've shifted. At the beginning of the year where I was just, I hit a wall during COVID, like being in detox Mm. residential, it was really intense. Mm. I finally hit this wall where I was just like, I literally cannot function like this and it was another like prayer of desperation that like when I was getting sober of just like please I just something needs to change same thing and that's why I'm at the district I prayed for it basically (laughs) honestly because it's outpatient I get off at three you know there's not crisis I put my phone down and I get to be present weekends I'm present I haven't had that in eight years hmm yeah, so tell us about the work you're doing now. You're doing some incredible work, even in the legislative yes. realm. Yeah. So just being in the treatment industry for so long, I've just seen kind of all elements, mm-hmm. even how insurance handles it. And it's I'm an advocate because I want people to get well. Mm-hmm. And the reality is is the messaging even that insurance is is giving is – We want to see you fail at a lower level before we'll authorize a higher level of care. And if you understand this disease, that's asking someone to gamble and risk their life. Right. Not only that, through time I've seen um, our industry unethical players, and they've abused the insurance. Mm, They can't sustain paying out of network rates like this. It's just not realistic. And this happened when Obamacare happened because mm-hmm. it allowed children up to 26 to go on their parents' policy. And so then it was a treatment rush, essentially. And um, even like when someone's in detox residential, you know, if someone's been doing benzos for a very long time, it's very dangerous. You need a medical detox and a professional. And they would only authorize three days, four days. You know, how is someone supposed to get well? So I was seeing all of this happen, mm-hmm. and I'm like, this is not cool. Yeah. I'm not cool with that. And so I actually flew to D.C. to lobby um, with a couple people, and that's kind of what sparked us creating CASA, which is the California Alliance for State Advocacy. And we're actually considered an ASA of NATAP, which is national, and it's like every treatment provider that's ethical is NATAP certified. It's just an expectation. It's kind of like JCO to mm-hmm. me. And even though with Jayco you need, you know, to, that's for treatment, right? But this is a whole other level. This is like, hey, I'm doing the right thing. We're going to be transparent. Here's our policies and procedures. We're do, we do outcome studies, all of it. And so we built CASA for the state of California because when we went out to D.C., there were only five of us in the state of California advocating for California. Mm. Which is alarming a little yeah. bit. Especially with so many rehabs in this state. Yeah, yes. And that opioid epidemic and everything that's happening right now. And, and we have a part in that. And so even like my treatment friend owners, I'm like, hey, you're going to sit here and own a treatment facility for profit. Does that stop there? Like what else, what else are you going to do to contribute and mm-hmm. give? I'm just like a a big believer in like whatever you get, you give some of that back Mm -hmm. because that's just how this works. If you take, 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 it's it's just not going to be a good treatment center and it's not going to the people aren't going to get well. Mm -hmm. 
So it kind of sparked advocacy. Yeah, because I think sometimes people are in this industry for the wrong reasons, at mm-hmm. least, you know, from what I saw 10 years ago, mm-hmm. five years ago. Yes, and it comes from like a lack of leadership. Well, what can people do? What could people do to not only help somebody in their own family that might be struggling, but, um, you know, help give back, help support that community yeah. that you're helping to create? I would say time is the best thing. Um, For me, before advocacy, I would speak on panels. Mm -hmm. If naturally you're getting well, there's a whole other element to maintain your recovery, and that's your actual program. And with that comes a process. Surrendering, right, on some level, looking at patterns of behavior, figuring out, okay, where can I right my wrongs? And then what can I do to give back? Because if someone didn't give back to me, I would not be where I am today. Even New Direction scholarship Celia, if she, if I didn't have that, because I didn't have health insurance, I don't know where I would be. And so I always, I'm, that's just like my mission is to advocate and to give back because I'm grateful. <laughs> Being grateful is what helps me stay sober. If you could speak to maybe there's a certain segment of our audience where there are high-functioning moms out there or dads, but maybe they dabble with with pills or they have some kind of alcohol addiction. What would you say to them? I would say challenge what your intentions are. If you're – because I get it. Being a mom is a lot. Being a dad is a lot. Being a person in the world right now is a lot. <laughs> And so if you find yourself not healthily communicating or maybe unable to communicate out of fear, rejection, or whatever it is, if you find yourself coping in a way that's drinking just a glass of wine every night, I would say, again, just kind of challenge what your intention is, is it to escape? Because if it is, then you're, we will come to a crossroads at some point in time because, it, again, it, it's progressive. And my story, although I, I did pain pills, it's not any different than alcohol. What tells us it's different is what's been pushed by society, mm-hmm. right? Like they, we've criminalized drugs, drug use and marijuana use, but the alcohol is also a drug, but it's on every billboard. It's yeah. acceptable. It's easily accessible, and so I would just say proceed with caution, honestly. And, again, just like your intention is really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this, you're, you're so wise and, um, like I <laughs> said before, you. so brave. And your four daughters and your husband are lucky to have you. What an amazing role model. Thank you. And we're so grateful that you could share your story with us and with our audience. And I know that there's somebody that it's it's going to hit home and strike a chord and really change their lives. So we really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. And how can people find you, get involved with what you're doing, be a part of your nonprofit? Can you give us your info? Yes. So today I work for... Uh, I'm a director of communications, as you guys shared, with Red Songbird. And that's kind of like my commitment just to give my talent, I guess you could say, because there are so many people that don't know how to find proper treatment. They don't even know what the levels of care are, all of that. And so that's 
kind of a way of giving back. And so, um, and they actually do incredible work. They gave out $1.4 million in scholarships last year. Wow. Which is, and for me, that's so refreshing because I get to pick up the phone and just hear and listen and give recommendations. I'm not out of facilities trying to get them into treatment, right? right. That, that particular facility is just super open. I, I could come from like a harm reduction perspective because mm-hmm. sometimes people, you just need, need to be able to meet people where they are. Maybe they yeah. aren't ready to get rid of whatever habit it is, but we need to talk about it, Yeah, you know? And so www.redsongbird.org okay. is where you can get more information there. There's actually a scholarship application provided anyone is just doesn't know what to do. They don't have insurance, no resources, apply. I'm the one that gets the applications and I read them. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll start to pull resources and hit up all my contacts. of like, okay, I have this girl, you know, whoever that's 18 needs this, you know, and we'll pull resources. Um, and then I'm also with the district recovery community. It opened as a sober living 10 years ago, and I love this because community is important. And it was just a sober living, and they perfected that community piece and then added the clinical component later. Um, and for me, aftercare, again, it's it's coinc- it's more my pace because I do have so many children. I want to be able to go home at night and just put my phone down. Yeah, sure. Um, but they also are in network with, okay, so Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna, Humana, HealthNet, TRICARE, Magellan, um, and I'm pretty sure there's, like, another one. And the way, because of everything that's happened in the industry, insurance companies, the out-of-network stuff is a, is going kind of away, you know, because it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was being abused, for so sure. So abused. <clears throat> and so to be able to be somewhere that's actually in-network, to be more accessible... It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, and they're a primary mental health track as well as a substance use track. And they can do things like EMDR, hmm. um, somatic experience. Um, and that's just where, like, the healing, like, truly you can see it. You can start seeing, like, the lights coming back to the eyes. Um, and so, I mean, I don't even care to give my phone number out. We can, like, put that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that in the show notes. We'll put that in the show notes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm on Instagram. Te- don't text her after 10. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Within boundaries. Yeah. There was a perfect example of me. Yeah. I'll give out my number. Because <laughs> I can't. I think what we'll do at this point is people will just have to look up Red Songbird. That's so funny. They can message you. We're not going to enable you, Jaina. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you guys were therapists. <laughs> that was That's perfect. Um, but I'm on Instagram pretty actively. So Jaina Woodbury. Jaina Woodbury. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, we are so happy to have you here today. Thank you Thank so much you. for sharing your story, being vulnerable and raw, and and speaking your truth. It's it's really beautiful and powerful. Yeah, and we hope this podcast also inspires others to yeah. to really think about their relationship with alcohol or pills, yeah. or if they have um, a relative also that may uh, really need recovery, that this would inspire that growth. Yes, and also just for people to not get discouraged because yeah. when it comes to alcoholism and addiction, it is classified as a disease for a reason. And so just to kind of take a step back and trust the professionals um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, right. is important. 
Thanks, Jaina. Yeah. Thank you. Of course. That was really so incredible. I mean, Jaina's story is just so inspiring, and she is so um, articulate and and brave. I kept I kept saying that. I mean, I was just really blown away with her courage to to find to get to recovery and and to do it while raising a toddler, which is so challenging even on its own, and to do it alone. Well, and part of it was being in recovery, mm-hmm. raising her toddler, who was three, mm-hmm. pregnant, yes, oh, that's and right. going to school at the same time. Yeah. I mean— And getting straight A's, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty remarkable. Pretty right? remarkable. But she probably also, I would think, needed the um, the classes also because she had to pour her time into something that felt really productive, too, for right. her, Right. That's right. And life-giving. And she was really good at school. That's something that she knew to be true for herself. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I really love about her story, you know, aside from the fact that she was so, you know, shared such vulnerable um, feelings and thoughts that she had during that time, but just the fact that she finished her with her recovery and then she wanted to go back and help other people. Mm-hmm. And and she's made that her mission to, and I just think that's so incredible to, to see. Yeah, I think she has a true calling to that. Yeah. And I would think, too, with um, with her story, you know, it's it's got to be so inspiring. But then also that people really feel like they she gets it. Right. You know, that, that empathy and compassion really comes through as we even sat with Jaina. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine other people that are in a in a hurting place, needing recovery, Mm -hmm. um, feel so seen by her. Yeah. And, you know, the other piece that I loved that she shared was um, how she just spoke with such vulnerability. Like it was once she hit those Mm. those points of I was shooting up in front of my daughter. It was something I used to be ashamed to own, but then I had to truly own it in order to really embrace my recovery. Yeah. I mean, she speaks her truth. She speaks her truth. And that is what I think speaks volumes probably to the people that she sees and sits with, that you yeah. have to own your truth in order to really move through your recovery. Yeah, and it helps her become more relatable too. For sure. They, she's been where they they may also have and been. And stay sober herself. And stayed sober. Yeah. So um, please listen to our podcast and pass it on to anybody you think that it might help that might be going through um, a struggle with addiction. And we'll see you soon for our next episode. Yes, and as always, find us online at uh, Mainspring Family Wellness or on Instagram at Mainspring Family. We are offering bodywork, Reiki, and massage, craniosacral. We have hypnosis available. We have our counseling center. So a lot of resources at Mainspring Family Wellness to help you with your optimum wellness and for your family as well. We'll see you back in a few weeks. Mm-hmm.